The horizon is wide and the highway is calling. That means it's time for another episode of American Road Trip Talk. I'm your host, Gary Mounts, with a welcome and an invitation to travel the byways and backroads of yesteryear, searching for America in every incomparable mile. Welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen. Always glad to have you with us. And we're happy to have Eric Ryder, our producer at the board. He makes sure that we stay in our lane, you know. Today, we're going to go to a place that is a place of both tragedy, but also inspiration, a place that celebrates freedom and reminds us that the freedoms we do cherish are one in treasure and in blood. World War I still is referred to as the Great War, or more ironically, the war to end all wars. Influences of that unprecedented military conflict resonate even today. The ultimate historical presentation of it, including unrivaled exhibits and an unsurpassed collection of artifacts, are deployed in Kansas City, Missouri at the World War I Memorial and Museum. It is monumental in every sense of the word. That's where we are going to go today. And there are a couple of people who are chiefly responsible for its continuing success. We'll be talking to them on the other side of a short break. So hang in there with us. This is American Road Trip Talk. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days. And I want to bring attention to a life-saving product called Alert Drops. Drowsy driving is one of the most catastrophic problems in America, and Alert Drops will stop it. Kids studying in college, drinking too much caffeine, overloading on these energy drinks, they end up in the hospital. Alert Drops will stop it. What is Alert Drops? Alert Drops is a simple spray on the tongue made out of citric acid, sour lemon, and water, co-created with my uncle, Dr. Henry Heimlich, creator of the Heimlich Maneuver, who said, Anson, Alert Drops will save more lives than the maneuver. Whether you are driving, whether you are studying, whether you're just a tired mom, whenever you need to be alert, get Alert Drops. A simple spray on the tongue, nothing in your system, and you're naturally awake, naturally alert. It's scientifically proven. It's doctor approved. Again, it's natural. It's been honored by the United States Congress. Go to alertjobs.com. Very important. Go to alertjobs.com and stay safe. Make us part of your daily routine. Alternative Talk, 1150. Welcome back to American Road Trip Talk. We are going to talk to, oh my goodness, these experts we have today. I, I went to the top. I went to the CEO, I went to the curator of education in order to get the story. First, Dr. Matthew Naylor is the president and CEO of the National World War I Museum and Memorial. A native of Australia, I think you'll hear that shortly, Dr. Naylor began his tenure at the museum in June 2013 and possesses more than 25 years of experience in the nonprofit arena. Under his leadership, the museum has achieved tremendous success breaking records for attendance, for educational community event participation, website traffic, and media impressions. Also, we have Laura Vogt. She is the curator of education at the museum and memorial, which has been consistently ranked one of the top 25 museums in the country. Under her guidance, public program attendance records have been broken repeatedly. And with a virtual experience called War Remains set to open very soon, even greater success is expected. Welcome to Trip Talk, Dr. Matthew Naylor and Laura Vogt. Hey, we're happy to be with you. Thank you. It is our pleasure. 
I will have no trouble separating the two of you as we speak. <laughs> we are absolutely delighted. But Dr. Naylor, let me get started with you. And Laura, please jump in throughout this. And I'm going to have some questions for you specifically as well. But Dr. Naylor, it seems to me that this memorial and subsequently the museum developed faster relative to that which it commemorates than a lot of museums and memorials in our country. Is that true? Yes, I think it's really true. In fact, it would be true across the globe. And it's a wonderful story of American ingenuity and the American civic sector. Now, soon after the armistice of 1918, a group of community leaders came together saying, let us do something to commemorate the war dead in the region and to create a tribute for peace. And then in, in uh, 1919, a citywide fundraising campaign took place, really a grassroots campaign that about 83,000 people participated in, raising in 10 days $2.5 million, or the equivalent today of close to $40 million. And hence then that led to the creation of the museum and memorial uh, to the most comprehensive, uh, most diverse collection of World War I artefacts uh, in the world, and then this remarkable uh, memorial and museum that you see in its current form uh, with congressional designation as the National World War I Museum and Memorial, uh, you know, from the bottom up. Quite a different story than in other countries, Gary, than what you'd expect, uh, but a, a uniquely American story. Uniquely American. And Laura, it seems to me that for something like that to be accomplished in such a short time and so soon after the events that inspired it, it speaks to a great deal of fervor. And with fervor, you have people, creative souls, people who are motivated and dedicated, who can engender that kind of emotion and raise that much money. That's truly extraordinary. Oh, it absolutely is. And and not only within Kansas City, where an, an extraordinary amount of, of money was raised in such a short period of time that, that uh, within those 10 days um, to be able to create the National World War I Museum and Memorial but across the nation, uh, most of your listeners, if you if you take a moment and and you look within your own communities, you will find that there is a memorial, that there's a cenotaph, there's a water fountain or a stadium that is named in memoriam to the war to end all wars because there was that great push, that movement um, really in April of 1917 for Americans to uh, consider themselves all a part of this effort. Um, and so there was a, a, a shift within, I would say the, the heart of the American community and people truly wanted to memorialize it so that uh, the sacrifices, that courage, that honor, that patriotism of their time would be remembered, you know, a hundred years later in our time. And I can't help but put myself in the place of those millions of people who referred to World War I, as it became known subsequently, as the war to end all wars, because it was quite aspirational for them to say that. There was a genuine, heartfelt ambition to say, in so many words, we don't want to go through something like this again. And even as they said that, the effects of the Treaty of Versailles were starting to kick in, that treaty being a big hit everywhere but in Germany. <laughs> well, especially not in, in Germany. Um, the Germans, and this is something that was unique to this time frame, right? We've had uh, wars basically since the, the beginning of civilizations. And 
Uh, for most of history, the losers of that war were brought around that peacemaking table at the end of it. And a unique decision was made in the midst of this treaty building. And it wasn't necessarily intentional at the beginning, um, but it just became uh, a function out of how large this peacemaking um, was was that Germany was provided with one completed document. They didn't have any say as to uh, what uh, they, they thought was good for their communities or the like, that idea of um, collaboration uh, to create what that next uh, stage, what that, that healing hopefully uh, from that war looks like. And, and so certainly uh, that was very, detrimental and it laid the groundwork for the next world war that was to come. Um, but there were a lot of people who went into the Paris Peace Conference, uh, which really began in January of 1919, very optimistic. They really did believe that they might be able to come out with something that was better. Uh, that something that might be worthy of the, the shifts uh, the the losses that had occurred. But one of the challenges that we all know and understand is that when you have so many people who come to a table and they all want something and they all feel like they've been promised something, people don't necessarily leave the table getting what they thought they were going to be getting. And that really is the case. There were uh, many, many individuals and leaders and nations who left that Paris Peace Conference experience knowing that this was not a treaty that was going to end uh, all wars, uh, that it might have just been a cessation of battle uh, on, that, on that Western front, but that it would quite possibly be leading to wars in the future. That's an amazing historical lesson, uh, Laura and uh, Matthew, because when I think about it, the way it's described, the way you just talked about it, makes me think that this was the imposition of peace terms far more than it was a treaty because of the nature of the negotiation. And at that point, the Germans clearly were not in the position of having much leverage. I think that there's much to be learned by what happened then that we would do differently in the future. It's worth noting also that it wasn't until 2010 that the reparations that the Germans were paying were fully satisfied. So they carried that debt for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, clearly that would have an impact uh, on the German experience. Oh, it certainly would. And, you know, in that regard, let me mention this fact from my own experience in discussing World War I when it comes up in conversation. I have had people tell me, when I asked them, well, when you think about World War I, what did you learn in school? And what they take back, uh, Matthew and Laura, is I understand that um, the war didn't exactly get started because someone assassinated the Archduke Ferdinand, that there, it was more complicated than that. But historians argue amongst themselves about what exactly caused it fundamentally. And then secondly, they will say, and we know that Adolf Hitler 
was a soldier and he was exposed to mustard gas. And that may have been one of the things, one of the burdens that he carried, which twisted his mind, hardly the only reason, but one of the things that made him such a dedicated proponent of establishing Aryan supremacy at the cost of anyone who wasn't with him or of his people. It's a complicated story, uh, isn't it, uh, Gary? And one of the things that we do here at the Museum of Memorial is help unpack that. Uh, you know, this war involved empires and countries that don't exist anymore. And so it's difficult to wrap your head around why in the world did this occur? And then how was it that it ended at the Museum and Memorial? We seek to unpack that globally to talk about how every inhabited continent in the globe was swept up into this. That if there were, if those were individual countries, now it's about 115 countries that played a role in the war, that it had such a profound cascading order of effects that brought uh, nations and colonies into the war. And then we talk about then how, uh, the, how it came to a conclusion. And then, as you say, the circumstances were set up for an ongoing simmering uh, of resentments, how they then grew and developed and then and many of those resentments contributed to then the emergence of issues which led to World War II. It's a complicated story that I think beautifully what we unpack here for people to understand. And thank you for putting it in those terms, because my very next question is, what did you unpack in terms of setting up an historical tableau and presentation, even to the point, we've got to get this in, there, even to the point where you have an interactive virtual experience that's opening in a very short time called War Remains. And I understand that there is nothing like it that anyone has ever seen in trying to recreate what it is to be in the middle of warfare. Uh, you're Either absolutely. one of you can jump on that. Matt, you want yeah, to start absolutely. with Laura, please. I'm going to finish Matt's words right there. Absolutely. Uh, and and to build on what you were saying about in the classroom, you certainly you do learn about uh, potentially the Will Drew Wilson's 14 points and Archduke Franz Ferdinand and maybe how it, it, it helped inform World War II. But you don't get to experience um, the... At the trenches, what was the experience of so many all along the lines of the Western Front? And this is a really a, a transformative opportunity for people to feel, hear uh, what it was like to walk in the steps of, of a soldier on the Western Front. Matt, would you like to add more? Well, one of the things that Laura and her team have done in the uh, programming and interpretive work here at the Museum of Memorial is to help folks access the enduring impact of the war. You know, there's not a day that we don't wake up where we're dealing with issues that weren't somehow influenced by decisions made during World War I. And so a lot of our work is to examine what happened during the war and then talk about the long shadow of the war. And this is a great example of that. We're using this fantastic immersive technology we're able to introduce people in a very evocative uh, way that touches your, your heart and your mind that doesn't just, it's not just about teaching uh, history, it's about experiencing history. And I think that that's the power of this. We're so thrilled with the folks at Madison Wells who developed this, uh, Brandon Oldenburg, who is a, a Oscar-winning um, designer and producer, 
uh, Skywalker Studios, who did the sound. That's uh, George Lucas's group who did the sound for this experience to create this fully immersive VR experience to help people access and think about the war uh, in a way which is more experiential. Experiential like like we've never seen before. War remains. Now, Matt, you're the president and CEO. Who get, and if you can tell us just briefly, who came to you with this idea? How was it discussed? When did it start to seem real to you? Yeah. And then you must have said one day, okay, I'm giving you the green light. Yeah, isn't it wonderful how these things sometimes just fall together? Uh, we became aware of this when it was uh, launched at Tribeca in 2019. Uh, and it was an absolute spectacular hit. People had to register to experience it at Tribeca at the film festival. And within three minutes, each date was completely sold out. So we knew something was happening here that really caught our attention. We then experienced it and said, wow, we've got to find a way to partner with this group to bring it here to the National World War I Museum and Memorial to reach new audiences and to enrich people's experience of their in-gallery uh, experience. And so we began conversations, the pandemic hit, that sort of messed up our ideas about partnering and touring this. And then it was an extraordinary call that was made by the folk at Madison Wells and Gigi Pritzker, who supported this project, who then they gifted it to us. And the whole thing was gifted to us. We've then looked for the day where we can then put it together and then be, when it was safe to do so, begin to introduce it to our, our visitors. And so it opens very soon. Uh, you know, it really aligns with what our broader goals are, though, to provide more ways for people to access thinking about the war and its enduring impact. And there will be gamers out there of no interest in World War I who just want to have this immersive VR experience. And then there are many of us who have a deep interest uh, in history who will say, well, this is a new way of learning about history and a way in which is so emotional, I want to experience that too. So we knew when all these stars aligned, heck, this is so great, let's bring it here. We've placed it in Memory Hall as well, an exhibition space that has around the top part of the wall a whole series of large, very large paintings that memorialise um, those who were uh, who served and lost uh, in the war, including a, a, a list of um, some of the war dead from the region or the, the war dead from the region. So it's beautiful that it's in this place as well, because the context, it's very real. This is not a game, it's real. And uh, it's, it's a fantastic way of connecting with audiences. This experience is virtual and yet visceral. That's what I'm getting from you. And uh, I hope to visit myself one day. It's not, it's a, rather a solitary experience though. Do you just send one people, one person through at a time and people are waiting to get in? It is, you know, that's, go on, Laura. Sure, we we do. We actually have time tickets. We want to be sure that everybody has enough time that they can explore uh, the the vistas and uh, the the virtual landscapes that have been created. So there's a timed ticket that can be purchased online at our website, theworldwar.org, and you can purchase it uh, several months out. Um, and then we really want to make sure that people can immerse themselves in that experience and have enough time um, before and afterwards. And also for those who may still uh, be getting used to being back out in spaces with others, it is that you are singularly walking uh, through that uh, landscape. Um, it is not in and among other individuals. And then when it comes to the permanent 
exhibit. My understanding, Laura, is that there are more cataloged items, artifacts than anywhere else in the world regarding World War I, including, of course, the uniforms and the weapons, but so much more. We have one of the most globally diverse collections in the world, and it is extraordinary. And I am lucky to be able to uh, connect with it and use it on, on a daily basis. Uh, what makes it this global collection in, in many ways is uh, what uh, is reflective of who we are. We are this nation of immigrants and over 97% of our collection um, has been um, ha has been donated, and it, it does tell this global story of this war that changed everything. And we would encourage anyone, if you are listening, whether it's live or on the podcast, uh, to head over again to the website theworldwar.org, and you can begin exploring on your own just a fraction of that collection and um, explore the pictures and explore the individuals, the people, um, and the places that they were, many of them just being snapshots um, of, of uh, those who were there wanting to send it back home so that uh, their family and their friends would have just a small taste of what that experience was like for them. And so many of uh, the pictures that you see are of people smiling and of people making uh, friends and of these new incredible spaces that they're getting to visit uh, for the first time because of this massive uh, shift, but also this massive catastrophe that is that is happening at the time frame. Um, so people should take a look at just a portion of the collection that we have to see those faces. And then when they get the opportunity to come visit us in Kansas City, Missouri, and to go through war remains, you can also see just how realistic the photographs and the objects that they have virtually embedded in your experience really are. They've done a spectacular job of making sure that they have a very strong line of historical accuracy with all of the objects um, that are included in the experience. Would that also include uh, items like, talking about a big one, a, a tank, one of the earliest battle tanks, and also the um, the artillery. I mean, these aren't models. These are the actual items that saw action. Uh, they absolutely are. Now, they uh, you should be coming through our main gallery if you would like to see a spectacular Renault tank um, with the wood kind of guiding uh, that wood guiding system still uh, still intact. It is an incredible uh, piece of technology uh, from that era. We've got a wonderful Harley Davidson motorcycle uh, that I think any Harley um, any Harley fan would like to come and see, um, and a wide variety of um, firearms, artillery guns uh, that are on display in uh, in the main gallery, and you can really see that shift of how. We went from, in 1914, this 19th century ideology of war to uh, very much by the time you leave the, uh, the West Gallery, you can see that 20th century um, innovation and technology. Um, and, and in and of itself, just looking at those pieces, you can see how it became such a deadly war. Yes, with all of that power involved and seen on that scale for the first time with the technological advances, 
Matt, is there something along that timeline in the museum that addresses the idea of using mustard gas, of using these nerve agents in a way that subsequently was, it still gets used, unfortunately, there, but humanity made a, a collective decision that this needed to be banned, it needed to be condemned. Yes, it's uh, one of those tragic stories. You're right in your introduction there, Gary, of we seek to uh, confess war's horror, but also to speak of the courage and sacrifice of those who served. And so there's no skirting the difficult stories and the use of chemical weapons is certainly one of those. To see the, uh, the whole series of, for example, uh, gas masks that we have to show their evolution is interesting and tragic at the same time of how uh, uh, people sought to cope with the introduction of uh, chlorine gas, then mustard gas, other uh, uh, irritants and, uh, and chemical devices. Uh, it's really fascinating to see the use of how they sought to protect horses and uh, as well. So indeed, in, the, in our galleries, we tell that story uh, to help people understand uh, the innovation which was used, and you know, that's what it is, but also the, the you know, abject horror of how that was used against, uh, and of course, uh, even at the beginning stages, blew back against one's own troops. And as, uh, as those who have been through the main gallery um, may know, or if uh, folks are um, really interested in this era of history, it wasn't a shift right after the war. It was, in fact, uh, decades before the war, as this innovation was being created, that uh, the majority of those combatant nations who ended up using that technology of gas, they were all agreeing before the war began that they wouldn't use a biological weapon. So part of what we also explore in our narrative is what pushes us to a point where we know we, as a collective global community, where we felt like something was wrong and that was not ethical, but we decide to take that action. And that is part of what we explore of the then. And it's a really important type of observation to be learning about in history that then we can uh, help inform our, our present and how we engage in decision-making today. And thank you, Laura and Matt. If I want to make plans to go, what if I want to get my tickets? I want to go to War Remains. I want to see the whole thing there. How do you go about getting tickets? And where, where are places in social media, for example, where I can explore before I travel? Well, to begin with, the best place online is uh, theworldwar.org. Tremendous resources there, ticketing, information about your visit. That's the best place to begin Laura, we have a robust social media uh, presence. You might mention a couple of the locations there. Absolutely. Take a look at our Twitter account, uh, the WWI Museum. You can also explore uh, some of the beautiful images that our uh, social media manager and graphic designer puts together uh, on our Instagram account. It kind of gives you a behind the scenes look at what's going on in the museum and memorial. You can also check us out on Facebook. If you just type in our name, National World War One Museum and Memorial, it will uh, pull us up. There are times that we have some of our programs 
on Facebook Live, as well as a lot of connecting points to articles uh, and other things that uh, can both help lighten and enlighten your day. And lastly, if you're not able to come join us in Kansas City, Missouri uh, soon, we would certainly invite you to come check out uh, our YouTube channel. Uh, the easiest way to get there is to go to theworldwar.org and in the upper right hand corner, there's a YouTube symbol. Click on that. And we have over uh, 150 different lectures uh, that you can uh, listen to, you can watch and enjoy uh, and learn more about uh, this event that really uh, changed the world. Matt Naylor, Laura Vote, thank you both so much. In anticipation of Memorial Day, we wanted to do this episode this way, and we can't thank you enough for helping us to remember and never forget. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in to American Road Trip Talk. We love to have you with us every single time. Go to AmericanRoadMagazine.com to preview the current issue. Until next time, dream well and drive safely on the American Road. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures Detail in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure.